Welcome to You Got to Know, the podcast where we discuss television between 1995 and 2005. I'm your host, Bo Tamison Bennett, and every month I invite a friend to discuss a show from that fascinating era. Cult classics and one-hit wonders, we get into all of it here on You Got to Know. Legend tells of a caped crusader, Batman, guardian of New Gotham, and his one true love, Catwoman, the queen of the criminal underworld. Their passion left behind something extraordinary, the daughter, Huntress. Half metahuman, she has taken up her father's mantle and under the cover of night fights to protect the innocent and helpless. Joining her in this struggle, Oracle, who was once Batman's protege, Batgirl, she was caught in the crossfires of the war between Batman and Joker. Now, she fights crime a different way, a master of the cyber realm, and mentor and trainer to heroes. Together, they have taken in a runaway, Dinah, a metahuman herself, with powers to open hidden doors to the mind. Powers that she is only beginning to explore. Together, these three are the protectors of New Gotham, the Birds of Prey. Before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am serious. I was almost an English major. Uh, I would say I'm more of a media appreciator than anything else. I wish to remain mysterious. We do not have the security clearance to perceive you. Yes, exactly. That's that's my gender, is unable to perceive. God, that is such a mood. Today, we are talking about Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey is a 2002 WB show that premiered a year after Smallville's surprise success and thus the rushing into production of this absolute gem. <laughs> it is an absolute gem of a show, no matter what we're about to say <laughs> about it. I would call it an experience. Not always a good experience, but an experience. I watched this show when I was 13, so it automatically falls into that category of, yes, I can tell now it is objectively bad, but if someone who doesn't appreciate it the right way says it's bad, I will punch them? Like, I won't actually, but that will be what I'm feeling, because yes, it's trash, but you don't understand it's good trash. (laughs) My introduction to DC and what kind of remains my biggest touchstone for DC is Teen Titans, Young Justice, and Batman the Animated Series. It was interesting for me to look at because I'm a big fan of that, like, kind of dark style of movie that was really popular. Well, I say as movie because I look at it and I think of Underworld. Um, But I don't have very much exposure to those that kind of TV show, and it was not something that I watched until this month. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here like, I grew up on WB. I still only watch WB. (laughs) I have a very deep appreciation for this era of bad TV. I love it. So the general plot of this show, though, we're given the plot every single episode in the intro when we get that Alfred monologue that's basically summarized down to 
For some reason, Black Canary is a telepath now and has vision. She is drawn to Gotham by her visions of the great tragedies in Helena, Kyle, and Barbara Gordon's lives. Uh, Helena did not know that her parents were vigilantes until her mother was murdered in the streets and she got sent to live with Barbara. And we basically pick up seven years later when we then see that Helena is in therapy and her therapist is motherfucking Harley Quinn. Oh, and all of the Batman and Joker stuff was somehow a super secret war that nobody knew about except for some people here. Legends. It's been seven years. It can't be a legend after seven years. That's my big problem with just the structure of the series is because the timeline doesn't make sense. It's been seven years since Selina Kyle died, since Batman went away, and yet they're talked about like these great unknown things. Like, it was seven years. And also there's Old Gotham versus New Gotham, which I don't even know if we want to get into it, but Old Gotham doesn't make sense. Yeah, because... Old Gotham is basically, their whole thing is the Gotham that we are seeing now was built over top of Old Gotham, which Barbara referenced having fought Joker in Old Gotham. So thus implies that seven years ago, the city just fell under the earth and they just were able to build everything up to a point where people don't even question the fact that they rebuilt a city in seven years. And I mean, visually, the look that they go for with the Gotham streets, it doesn't look like a city that's only been around for seven years. Yeah. It's just... I could I could go with New Gotham if it were some kind of a marketing thing that the city decided to do, where they were like, wow, there's a lot of murders mm-hmm. in Gotham, so we'll become New Gotham, and maybe people will visit us then. Yeah, Which I also just find so funny because a big thing you will know if you watch uh, uh, Smallville is the fact that anything we're about to talk about with Birds of Prey, they just straight up ignore. Even though they're supposed to be in the same canon, they, they, (laughs) no, it's not, you know, they, they just pretend it never existed. They reference regular Gotham. There's a lot of characters from Gotham that pop up. Also, just a little funny thing that proves how much they ignore it is the fact that Dinah is a character later on in like season seven I think and she is so different and she is so badass (laughs) there's a lot of birds of prey that Smallville would eventually say hey we can do that but better wow I just thought of uh the dumbest side theory that you can totally cut out of this but I have to exercise from my brain uh in your presence please tell me what if Birds of Prey Dinah is, like, the child of a meta- You know a cuckoo bird where they will lay their egg in another bird's nest, and that egg will kind of- will give birth to a bigger baby that will just kind of kill its nestmates until the parent has, has raised a different bird? So- Oh my god, yes. So what if there was a meta that was like, ooh, Black Canary could probably take care of my kid better than I could. So she replaces the original Dinah with her child and has some kind of cuckoo-like meta power that makes her believe that this is her Dinah. Oh my god, I love this so much! And 
that's why Dinah has really is like referenced to maybe have the canary cry, but doesn't, and instead has telekinesis and um, telepathy. Oh, I this is this is my new canon. <laughs> I I will only discuss this now in reference to Birds of Prey. This is the, this is the best. I love it. The Dinah is a replacement child, like some kind of meta changeling. It makes her story so much more interesting than what we're presented with. It does. I like I I wanted to like it aesthetically because I really like that era of kind of the grim dark look. Uh but it was just they took the best parts of the Michael Keaton Batmans and the best parts of like the underworld movie aesthetic. Though Underworld wouldn't technically come out until after Birds of Prey. It was in production around the same time. So aesthetically, they're very similar. And it took the best parts of both of those and mashed them into something that just always felt off to me because it never fully committed to either principle. So it was a little too cartoony to be truly dark, but then like not quite campy enough to make it interesting, you know? I really like what the aesthetic personally, but also I am really here for taking a specific aesthetic that could in and of its own right be called a cliche, like the underworld aesthetic, which I feel like ended up becoming its own cliche, but because it committed to itself so hard, it didn't quite feel like it. But if something else did it, it would feel cliched, if that makes sense. And just takes something like that and just makes it cartoonish and campy and bright and but also you could say that about my own aesthetic (laughs) but see i think you hit exactly on the pro you hit right on the problem that i have with the aesthetic because i was thinking of movies that take the dark style very seriously and they're also movies that um can that commit very heavily to their premise and are very melodramatic like the crow is incredibly, like, high drama. It's a comic adaptation. Sin City is a very highly stylized kind of comic book thing, but it commits really hard to its premise. And Mm -hmm. Underworld does kind of a similar thing, even though, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't have any comic canon. It's just Hollywood being weird. I think that's what I find Birds of Prey to be lacking in, is it doesn't have the level of melodrama necessary to fit the darkness of the aesthetic. And it also doesn't have the level of campiness or self-awareness necessary Mm -hmm. to play off that comic aesthetic very nicely. Like, it doesn't have a lot of self-awareness and it takes itself just the wrong level of seriously. Yeah, it also aesthetically borrows from a lot of other shows of its time that ended up doing it a lot better like probably the show that this visually reminded me of the most of the wb family was charmed there's a lot that they not only borrowed from charmed like the more i think about it i think some of those cityscape sets were borrowed from charmed because There in the mid-2000s, towards the end of its run, it was pretty camp- it had those pretty campy, fake-looking city sets that I just love for how cheap they look. (laughs) And also a lot of the same effects, like those two metahumans with the flamethrowing powers. 
as soon as I saw those, I'm just like, oh my god, they borrowed that effect from Charmed. And what I will always give credit is that even if I have problems with the way they do the aesthetic, it's always interesting to look at. Like, it's never boring, and I can definitely say that about the costumes, is they're never boring. Ugly, but not boring. Yeah. Okay, but how amazing would it have been if they found some way to use that black and white visual effect from the first episode throughout the season? I think I would have been into that. I'm I'm sad that in that intro where they use the shot from that black and white sequence that they colorized it instead of leaving it black and white because it looked way better that way. Yeah, and it had much more interesting editing when it was in that dream sequence black and white segment. I wish that they had gone full Sin City and just stylized the hell out of it and made it black and white and weird. But also, most of their budget was going towards Smallville, even though it was Russian in production to capitalize that and to try and start the Arrowverse way earlier. Uh, th- they didn't give it the budget it would really need to be able to fully commit. That's fair. And despite the budget, I do think that as objectively ugly as I found the costumes, they were compelling for the characters and pieces were reused, which is something that I love. Oh yeah, and that's definitely one thing that I personally love about this show is how much of a time capsule it can be for style of 2002, because... There are so many things in that show that I remember being everywhere when I was a child. Because, for for frame of reference, we were both born, like, around 96. So we were children. We were literal children in, like, 2002. But I remember, like, Helena's spiky bob. Yes. I remember that being everywhere when I was a kid. There's this awesome, like, those, uh, like, one-sleeve tank tops that were everywhere. I remember those. And there's just those very specific styles that they wear throughout that I'm like, yeah, no, you have you have captured what all of my Barbie dolls look like. Well, I find the boob window sweater absolutely unredeemable. It cannot come back. You should. I do. I have found that I appreciate how Helena's crime fighting outfit changes, and not just because the first one was ugly, but because I think it's very realistic for her character. You take that back about the boob window sweater. That was cute as hell, and at least she didn't wear the boob windows when she was crime fighting. She looked cute as hell. I will admit she does not boob window when she's fighting crime, but she does at points where something very low cut to fight crime. And I just kept thinking, what if you like fall out? You're doing acrobatics. I know how corsets work. It's probably gonna keep you in there, but if you do the wrong movement, you could just pop out. Let's be real, in a girl power show quite like this, there would be some kind of specialty superhero badass push-up bra that they would try and pass up as some great thing. Or they just have superhero boob tape. Can we talk about how the only character who ever had a consistently good 
look and wardrobe was Harley. She always had a good wardrobe. I liked how in her last outfit she had the black diamonds on it. Yes. She always has like a diamond black and white aesthetic. Like I know she has some kind of a checkered scarf at some point. She is the only one that also her hair did not end up looking like shit in the end. Because like with Helena, her style and like the way they did her hair and makeup, first three episodes, absolutely spot on perfect. And then they slowly start straightening her hair and cutting it shorter and shorter until the very end when it's just limp and sad. And then there's Harley who started out looking like a Karen and in the end just had the most amazing style. Like her hair, when they slicked it, do you remember when they slicked her hair back? Oh my god. Yes. Oh, with the little flips. I think part of how she was able to get away with looking so good for the entire run is because she wasn't there nearly enough. Yeah, they literally forgot about her for episodes on end. And it is so disappointing. It's the first half and the second half seem to be from different writers almost based on how things are handled and what happens. Because, like, Hawk appears in the first half of the season and I consider him a completely different character from the hawk that appears later. That's also about when it seems like they got a new hair and makeup team. I want to know what happens uh, there in the middle where everything just flipped. I fully agree. I feel like... Yeah, what? Uh, 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 I lost my train of thought now. Um... <sighs> okay, so here's my thing with Dinah. There are... So few good things with her. I feel so bad for the actress for what she had to work with because I would definitely say she's probably the most realistic teenager in how fast she flip-flops between stuff and how relatable I thought she was when I was 13 compared to other <laughs> on-screen teenagers. But realistic teenagers don't make interesting stories, unfortunately. <laughs> everything with Dinah felt kind of shallow. Like, they definitely wanted to do things. Like, they wanted to showcase her transforming from just kind of a meek, not popular girl to, to I guess, like, mini Helena, where she's competent and a good fighter and confident in herself. And it just feels like they never spent enough time on that so it all felt very shallow. Yeah, I think, like, a good example of that would be the episode when She's using her powers to try and get a boy to like her because when she touches people, she can see into their minds. And she does that to find out his favorite bands so they can pretend to be interested and gets him tickets to go see it. And she starts dressing differently for him and all of these things, which then after she does that, she immediately runs to Barbara just like, I think I did something bad. When it literally went from her being happy and excited that they had a date and we're going to go to the dance together. And the very next scene, she is suddenly upset with what she's done, even though we didn't get any escalation that would have made her flip like that. You know, I hadn't thought of that, but you are absolutely right. There was no specific incident that would make her doubt what she's doing. 
I do have to say, though, the only good thing I like out of that is our one little spot of canon gay. Because I will die by the fact that Helena has that hardcore bi energy. Yeah. But we only get one canon gay. Well, technically two, but they're both those, hi, I'm gay, goodbye. Which is Dinah's best friend, who I completely forgot that she just randomly comes out at the end of that episode when Dinah's afraid that she's gonna start dating the guy that she likes and she's like oh oh no 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 I wanted you to get him so that I could go after the girl he was into. I thought that for such a short little gay cameo they handled it really well but then she just never comes back even though they have other things at the high school. Yeah that's honestly probably the most disappointing thing about her but that's also very in hand for how gay stuff was handled on wb like once again with smallville um that show there's just something about wb or i guess now you would say cw uh show superhero shows and having just hardcore bi energy smallville is a great example of that but there's one moment where it's the only canon gay moment I can think of. A character is giving his co-worker tickets to a concert, and we just offhandedly hear this guy like, thanks, this is going to win me great points uh, with the boyfriend, and he leaves. And it's one of those moments where you just gotta sit there like, wait, was that like just a little cute gay moment? Was that like a non-gay bashing cute moment? And we've got to keep in mind that this was 2002 to 2003, so like... Exactly. There was no... There was no Korasami and there was no Rebecca Sugar. Yeah, so, yeah, to give it that real context, those little crumbs of, oh my god, Dinah found out her best friend is a lesbian and didn't automatically say, it's okay as long as you don't have a crush on me, or even just be outright disgusted, is a big deal. Yeah. Because, oh, that's, I think that's when you could still hear a casual f-slur get thrown down in an episode of friends and if we're gonna talk about character pros we have to talk about harley oh my god yes harley is so well written in this show i love her so much my only real harley experience is batman the animated series and the birds of prey movie Mm mm-hmm and I still absolutely love this iteration of Harley, because she's, like, she's scary, but she's still unhinged in all the ways we love. Yeah, because when I watched this for the first time when I was 13, my only exposure to Harley was the animated series. That was before her uh, run in New 52, which I have almost all of. Uh, that was before her cartoon. So when I was 13, I found this very disappointing because I was expecting, you know, the animated series Harley. That's what I was looking for <laughs> at the time. But as an adult, first of all, Harley Quinn is Mia Sarah. Harley Quinn is Ferris Bueller's girlfriend. Like, that is, as soon as I found that out, that is all I can think of. <laughs> but she is just... So well done, and she just seems like so much fun to play. And she is, I know that I've ranted about this to you privately, I love that she is allowed to be a psychiatrist in this, and I think this is, from my knowledge of the role, I would say this is the role where she is most allowed to show her intelligence and her cunning, and the fact that she's highly educated and a psychiatrist. 
Oh, yeah. And also, she gets to be the big bad of this whole ass show. We hear it, like, once or twice, but they end up forgetting it. Her whole motivation throughout this show is, they took my Mr. J away. I'm gonna make this whole city pay for separating us. She mentions that in episode three, and then she offhandedly mentions it in the GMO baby episode. And (laughs) that's all we hear. Uh, When she does exact her revenge, supposed revenge, she doesn't talk about it at all. So it kind of seems like she forgot about Mr. J and just realized that being a supervillain herself is kind of the best thing ever. I'm going to choose to believe that's what it was and not shoddy writing. Yeah, because honestly, that is just so much better. I love supervillain Harley Quinn. I loved her, and despite some issues he had, I thought that Reese was a really good character, and that his interactions with his father were really good just character stuff, which is wild to me because the way he interacts with his father Hawk is so interesting and it's actually pretty well done for the show but then they just shit the bed with Helena's whole parental thing with Barbara <laughs> they this is another thing that i find so funny considering it's a smallville spin-off because the core theme of smallville is the effects parenting has on what your kids will end up being because It is explicitly showing the difference between Clark and Lex, while also showing what their home lives are like with the Kents and with Lionel Luther. But then this show goes, oh yeah, we got daddy issues, dead mom over here. We have never gonna mention her iconic father over there, Helena and Babs, uh, respectively. And then we've got Dinah. Dinah and her mother is... So much. Oh my god. Because first of all, fucking Lori Loughlin's that the original Black Canary. I can't believe Lori Loughlin was in She's this. not even that good in this role. It's so stiff and uncomfortable. And not even just with the hindsight. No, it's just bad because the original Black Canary is a bad person in this show. Like, the way she treats her daughter is completely unacceptable. Oh, yeah, because there could be something said for, you know, she discovered that the C4 under Dinah's bed when she was like six and realized, oh, no, I'm putting my daughter right in danger, as well as myself being a vigilante with a kid, which I find so funny, considering it's basically said explicitly that everyone in the criminal underground knew about Helena and knew that Selena had a kid with Batman. Like, Clayface explicitly knows that Helena's parents are Selena Kyle and Batman. Which then, going back to the the Black Canary family, yeah, it's just so poorly done with her going from I can be a mom and a hero to, oh no, I'm putting her in danger too. I'm a bad mom. And then I'm a good mom because I left my child in a household that I didn't know how it would react if she ever developed metahuman ability. Yeah, she never discussed that with the family at all. Like, hey, my kid might start being weird eventually. 
and the fact that she was supposedly part of some espionage thing. Like, she was a spy. They mention espionage with her explicitly, and yet she somehow never was able to check in on Dinah in any it was real just way. Disappointing. And how she insists, like, I can be a mother now. And it's like, of course, she's 16 and she knows how to take care of herself. Now is the perfect time to pretend to be a mother because you don't have to do anything. Oh, yeah. As I wish it had been done so much better because kind of the big thing with this whole mom returning thing of she's here. Oh, now she's dead. Because uh, <laughs> she dies at the end of the episode is that that should have been an arc. Especially when we then have Dinah dealing with the emotional repercussions. Because yes, even though she was a shitty mom and she wasn't there, there's still an emotional toll to being like, oh my god, she died in front of me. And that's the closest we get to an arc, is Dinah dealing with those repercussions, but it's still over within a couple episodes. Yeah, it's just... It's such a mishandling of the material, and all it really does is make you hate Dinah's mother. Yeah. But also I feel like that sort of thing of it should have been an arc can apply to almost every single episode of this show, because there are so many things that should have been addressed throughout multiple episodes or happened over the course of several episodes that just happens all at once. There is almost no drawing out of the story. There's another uh, cursed thought that I had while we're still in characters. So Rob Benedict is in this, is in a minor role. Yes! Which was strange <laughs> for me being a Supernatural fan, even though I haven't seen, oh, halfway through season 10 through season 15. I haven't seen any of that. I am, I do associate Rob Benedict with Chuck very strongly. Though I realized, as we were talking about some of the Harley stuff, I wish that his character Gideon had remained insane. Oh yeah, there it felt, the way that they just reversed that whole thing, because Harley's grand plan in the very last episode, um, which is a great example of should have been an arc, she ends up uh, being able to transfer a metahuman's uh, powers to herself and has the ability to just make people do whatever she says and ends up using that to drive New Gotham crazy and just make everyone lose their minds. Her exact words. And I feel like it would have been much more... It would have been a much heavier and more impactful season finale and series finale if Gideon had remained insane because he'd been insane the longest. And then we could have had a setup for an original villain in the next one, given DC's propensity to go, ooh, mental illness, villain. Yeah, but of course, there was a lot of things that would have been a great setup for season two had they done anything to make it a long-standing show and not even within this season that was supposed to have more after it feel like a complete one season show like or let me try and put that more concisely yeah it would have been great but also this season in and of itself felt like a one-off like there's so many things suggesting that they were at least hopeful for another season 
such as the original ending, because I have no memory of the ending I watched when we watched this on CW Seed. That is not the ending I remember when I was 13, but it, it would have been good had they had a chance for a season two. So to start talking about problems with the arcs and with uh, various themes that they just waffle so hard on. I realized as we were talking about uh, Gideon and Harley getting those powers, why did we not spend time with the meta whose power was hypnosis? Because that's an incredible supervillain power, and it would have been really cool if earlier in the season slash series there had been a moment where, like, Helena meets him, And I assume he would be a pretty chill guy because he has hypnosis, but there's no reference to this character ever showing up before or ever using it against another person. Yeah, it. I wish that that had been drawn out more. If that had been, like, something we got to see when we weren't seeing what Harley was up to, because there was several episodes, I think, like, Four, episodes, four or five episodes where we just didn't hear anything from Harley. Um, even though Helena was supposed to be seeing her for therapy still, I'm pretty sure, in those episodes. Uh, it would have been cool if there had been like a little aside that, yeah, Harley's not directly involved with this story, but she's over here working with this guy, and she's testing out his powers, and she's getting these doctors to make this uh, thing so that she can steal his abilities and like what she was doing to convince all of these people because unlike Joker who had a more physically threatening demeanor yes Harley is physically threatening but she does not usually use that as her first means of intimidation she only really uses that when she has to, like when she kills that, um, those mercenaries that failed her in the GMO baby episode. Before that, she talked them into everything. Yeah. And I just, oh, I just had an interesting thought and it's like immediately slipped away. (laughs) So I accidentally watched the episodes out of order at first, uh, because, so I ended up, starting with the finale, and I got about halfway through it before I realized my mistake. When I was looking on Wikipedia through the little one-sentence descriptions of each episode, the episode with the guy who kills Metas, I thought that was going to be foreshadowing for Harley's machine. Because I had seen, when I accidentally watched the finale first, I had seen the machine at work, and I thought the episode that was labeled as, you know, Metas are mysteriously dying, I thought it was going to be like her test running that machine. That is a perfect example of how hard this show fails at foreshadowing and tying things together and makes everything its own single episodic adventure when they are clearly trying to have something that's overarching. It was like they wanted to do Monster of the Week and did everything to ruin both formats. (laughs) 
because Supernatural in the early seasons is a great example of how you can have Monster of the Week with an overarching plot, but the thing is, your overarching plot has to be simple. Yeah. Birds of Prey was not. Yeah, it was so convoluted. <laughs> and it, like you were saying before, they have such great arcs that could be really incredible if they had focused on just a couple of them and made them more than one episode. It very much screams, we were hoping for season two, but we were pretty confident at this point we weren't gonna get one. And it's, ugh, it's annoying. And with things that the show does not handle well, we have to talk about to kill bad guys versus to not kill bad guys. <sighs> okay, Besides the fact that they don't introduce that conflict until the second to last episode, so we got 11 episodes of just, yeah, Helena happens to kill a lot of people, and no one really says anything about it. Besides that fact, it would have been so much more interesting if they took it to the point of Batman had a no-kill rule, thus Barbara has a no-kill rule, which uh, feeds into Helena and her daddy issues, and her being more willing to just cap a bitch. Because, like, Slick in the episode Slick, which the <laughs> fact that they made that actor look so wet all the time grossed me out, even though it had to do with his power. He dies, like, really gruesomely. And I remember early on, I, I messaged you while I was watching it that I appreciated how willing the show was to just kill people because as many problems as I have with the trend of superhero grim dark, I really like a story where the hero is not a Afraid of just murdering someone. Especially with that episode with the guy that can phase through walls and they trap him in the totally not the high school abandoned hospital. Yes. Where Helena throws him into a lead wall and he phases into it and gets trapped. Like he's definitely dead. They can't get him out of that. Yeah, they like, they carbonated his ass. It was disappointing when we get to feet of clay and suddenly it's like, no, you can't kill Clayface. And I'm just, why? Why can you not kill Clayface? Even if they had just adjusted that to be, don't give him the satisfaction action because he was he was actively baiting her in that episode. It still wouldn't have been great, but it would have been a little more consistent with the story they had written up until that point. Definitely. And I feel like they tried to foreshadow that in Lady Shiva where they like maybe didn't kill Lady Shiva. It was still disappointing that the first part of the series was just so down to murder. And I feel like with, you know, the episode where she was in the biker gang? Oh, yeah. I feel like that and Gladiatrix yes. could have been used so much more effectively to set, I guess, the first steps towards Helena deciding to show mercy more often. Because I think both of those have a really good potential groundwork of she feels like she fits in with these criminals, but oh, they're down to murder, and that's not okay because now it's somebody that she knows. Uh, and Gladiatrix, where, you know, fighting to the death, there was potential there if the writers actually knew how how to tie their thoughts together, but they don't. <laughs> yeah, I wish those two episodes could have done so much, especially because those were the two episodes where we saw things with Reese start to step up, because Reese is very obviously supposed to be 
the commissioner, Gordon Standen. He's this cop who wants to see the corrupt Gotham PD change. So much we can discuss on that. Um, and in the Motorcycle Gang episode, that is Helena kind of extending an olive branch in his direction to work more on his terms because, like Commissioner Gordon, he grants some... I don't want to say he grants some legitimacy, but they're like they are on the same side throughout all of this. And then with the Gladiatrix episode, that is... Reese extending the olive branch back and saying, I understand not everything can work the way that I originally thought. Let me help. It had great ideas and they could have done something really interesting with it, especially with the concept of, like, women having to fight to the death in a show that's very girl power centric. Uh, but they up all of it and it's a terrible episode. I would say it's the worst. A hundred percent. It is just... Especially, especially with that super villain. Oh my god. I hate him so much. <laughs> yeah. He, especially with just his whole design and that suit. But I love the really bad eye prosthetic that once again, I'm pretty sure they got from the charmed makeup department. Yeah. <laughs> So I've been looking forward to talking to this because unfortunately there's a lot to talk about. Just the way they handle feminism and ableism and cops is, um, it's interesting. Just every possible thing that they could have commented on that had like an actual impact. Probably like the first warning of all of this is how they dealt with Dinah's abuse. When Barbara and Helena find out, oh, she was lying about her name. This is who she really is. She ran away from her foster home. And then Dinah ends up breaking down and crying to them about the abuse she went through at her foster parents' hands because of her metahuman abilities. And all Barbara has to say is, but don't you ever want to go home again? Her parents locked her in a closet for hours on end. I don't think she wants to go home. It was- the handling of abuse was really unfortunate, especially because of how Black Canary was so dismissive of it. Yeah. And also the fact that she didn't think her seven-year-old would never develop abilities when it's like, when you're in a superhero world, seven seems very young to start showing ab abilities when you aren't, like, an alien or something, you know? It reminded me- me a little bit of in the Incredibles how they're so sure that Jack-Jack doesn't have powers even though he's an infant, which indicates that both Violet and Dash were portraying powers as infants, which would be terrible. I love how that kind of then implies that Dinah's mom probably had her canary cry from birth, which I feel so bad for her parents if that's true. That would have been awful. But you know, another thing I just thought of, I'm full of thoughts today, I suppose. What would have made Black Canary's, I guess, abandonment of Dinah so much more impactful is something that I've read about is in the cycle of abuse in a family, a parent will try to be better than their parent was, but still be abusive because of certain learned behaviors. So consider that if Black Canary was abused by non-meta parents because of her canary cry, that she doesn't understand that her own daughter was abused by her foster parents because it wasn't as bad as what Black Canary went through. Oh, that would make so much more sense. But I know that the writers never would have thought of that. No, I can fix this show. Let me fix this show. <laughs> Let me back Dude. in time and I'll fix 
exit. Man, if I could go back to 2002 and just be like, wait, no, shh, shh, let, let me, let me do it. I can do this. I can fix it. Just let me fix it. I'm pretty sure we could write a better Birds of Prey with what the show gives us than the writers could. Man. I wish I had that chance. Oh, speaking of metas, I realize we haven't talked about the greatest plot hole in the entire series, which is how they handle metahumans. Okay, because a little bit of the background is the only real narrative crossover that we ever hear between Birds of Prey and Smallville is in episode one when Dinah's learning about metahuman stuff and they're explaining like, oh yeah, it can be genetic. It can just appear. Uh, Helena mentions there's also been things about meteor rock because in Smallville, we have what are called meteor freaks, which are normal people who have been very delightfully mutated. That is the only way I can describe the way that they deal with <laughs> how people get their abilities from kryptonite. From the kryptonite rocks that fell in the 1989 meteor shower that brought Clark to Smallville. And in this show, though, we get the genetic or the just randomly appearing metahuman throughout to very um interesting means. What doesn't make sense about their handling of metas is they establish pretty, pretty securely that meta... Humans are just kind of genetic anomalies. None have the same powers. Powers can be inherited, but that seems fairly rare. And like a metahuman can give birth to another metahuman that won't share the same powers, so it definitely has some kind of genetic component. But Selena calls Selena Helena calls herself half meta at various points early in the series, which doesn't make sense because if it's a randomly occurring genetic anomaly, then there is no half meta you're just meta because metas are born to perfectly normal parents supposedly there's so much about all of that that the show itself contradicts like the whole i've never heard of what two metas having the same ability which they say that so often but we literally see two metas with the same flamethrowing ability they imply that all metas have some kind of a healing factor which then makes me kind of laugh at smallville with lex having the meta ability of like super hopped up immune system and a healing factor and stuff and then there's like they imply like dynamite get the canary cry at some point too even though metas are not supposed to have repeating powers unless they're directly related. I mean, even then, I feel like they don't really address that fact because Gibson says so often in that anti-meta episode, several people say it, that they've never heard of two metas, period, having the same ability because of that meta that can mirror powers, which confuses everyone. So then why are they not discussing how Helena has the same powers as her mother? Right? The thing that I think handicaps the way they use metas is because in the anti-meta episode, they're kind of painfully trying to make it into a race allegory, which doesn't make sense because of how metas are addressed. Like, if anything, it should be more of a, I guess, a disability metaphor, kind of the same way that uh, mutants are in Marvel. There's so many moments in that anti-meta where it's like they are so close to saying something here about race and like racism, especially with that moment where the mirror meta, I forget his name, but he 
he's a detective that's working with Reese who he makes that horrible comment just like oh I can't imagine how messed up those kids from meta human relationships would be and meanwhile he's talking to Reese who is a mixed race man yeah that is one thing I appreciated with Reese is that Shamar Moore is mixed race and they actually made the character mixed race yeah they actually like stuck to casting his dad with a white guy which I am so glad they ended up recasting his dad and got that Mitch Pileggi from X-Files to play him because those two just play off each other so well. They have such great chemistry. Oh, yeah. I mean, they have such a mishandling of race, but thankfully, because they don't try to handle race very much at all, it's not catastrophic. They do the least amount of damage they could, mostly because they only talk about it, like, twice. Also, I know that Lady Shiva is a comic character, and that in the comic character she is, at least from what I have seen from looking at her Wikipedia page, she appears East Asian when Shiva is Hindu? Yeah. And they could have fixed that. They really could have fixed that and decided not to. But also, it was 2002, and there was the rampant Orientalism trends, and most shows you watched around that time had some sort of horribly racist, usually ancient Chinese secret-style story arc. Like, we got that in Smallville Season 4, we got that in, like, several seasons of Charmed. They did not care. They should have changed her name or, like, used an actual, you know, Asian supervillain. It's- that was just so weird to me, because I was watching it and I was like, are we not gonna address that Shiva is Hindu, or is that just- it's fine. Oh. Oh, you haven't watched a lot of 2000s shows. I grew up on Smallville. I grew up on Charmed. I grew up on so many of those iconic 2000s shows. They were all terrible with the rampant Orientalism throughout all of them. Like, oh, I'm remembering some specific episodes of Charmed right now, and it is painfully racist and stereotyped and terrible. They don't handle race well, but at least they don't handle it very much. Exactly. That is, when it comes to the racism of a 2000s show, that's probably the best you can say is at least they didn't talk about it often. Though can we rant about Clayface's accent? Oh my god. Because <laughs> yeah, I remember getting a text from you like, why does this guy sound racist? Like, he's played by a white guy, but he sounds racist. And I got to it, and, and I'm sitting there like, that is a very bad Louisiana accent. And my brain just zipped back to a, a podcast I had been on a couple years ago, where I was discussing Remy Laveau from X-Men with an actual Cajun person and discussing how bad Cajun accents are in media. And that's when I realized, oh no, they're trying to make Clayface Cajun. They tried to make him Cajun and they cast someone who cannot do that accent. And like, not to say that only black people in Louisiana have that accent, that's not true, but 
when you consider like minstrel shows and the way that accents are made fun of, the Cajun accent is the first thing people will go to when they are mocking black people in the South. Like that's, it's so many bad choices with Clayface, but I remember I was watching that and I was like, this, the way he's speaking makes me so uncomfortable. And I think that the Clayface prosthetics did not help. Oh, Barbara, Barbara, Barbara. There were small things when it comes to Barbara and being in a wheelchair that were almost good. Like, I liked the little detail of like, oh yeah, she has a chair that responds to her thoughts. Like, that's kind of the cool kind of tech that I want to see when we have a disabled character. I like when we get sort of sci-fi fantasy, like mobility aids that aren't, like, making them walk again. Once it gets into that territory, I'm like, nope, that's not not what I'm talking about. Such as, you know, when we get that belt that makes Barbara walk again. Yep, with the same technology she was using to power her chair with her mind. Yeah, I, I don't know. They were very vague on how the tech actually worked. Because I believe it was some kind of a neural implant that she put in her own spine that she started using to, like, direct her chair without having to use a joystick, but then started using it to walk because Alfred is specifically like, you could damage your spine more if you kept doing that. It was still just frustrating that they had a disabled character where we don't have to see her whole arc of like, oh, this is so hard on me, I have to adjust. Not that those are inherently bad stories, but they're never handled very well. And instead we've got an already adjusted Barbara who is gr- who is accustomed to, you know, using the chair and to living in a modified way. And then they just kneecap it with letting her walk sometimes. I feel like they had the start of something good with um, her boyfriend's parents. I don't even know if we want to give him a name because he's useless and exists for no reason. But that his parents think she's not good enough for him because she's in a wheelchair and like they could have done so much more than that but instead it's just used the way Wade is which is for pain yeah and it's just poorly handled not even just in like a they didn't handle this very sensitive thing well but in that we have that incident happen twice we have it happen off screen in like episode three where She talks about going to meet her boyfriend's parents, and then the next scene she's like, it happened last night, and she doesn't think I'm good for him. And then in, like, episode 11, we actually see that scene, but it's implied to be happening, like, a year later. The timeline just messes with everything in the show, even the good things. It's just so weird. I'm just so disappointed with how they handled Barbara, but they didn't commit hard enough to anything to make it aggressively offensive. Again, similar with the race thing. Yeah, it's literally just, they don't address it often, so they can't really mess it up often. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, oh, this show... They do the same thing with cops. They definitely want to have ideas about cops and policing, but they don't actually commit to any of them. Which is really sad because a huge chunk of the Batman story is the fact that the Gotham PD is corrupt. The Gotham PD 
won't do anything to actually deal with the problems of the city and thus Batman and the whole thing with Gordon who thought that he could change it from the inside but realizes that working with Batman is the only real way to see a change in it all and they just sort of they just sort of let it happen does stuff happen? I don't know. I don't know if we can even say stuff happens with the police. In the second episode, it's specifically referenced that Slick is killing off the good police officers, except for Reese. So then presumably there's only not good police officers after that. They're referenced to being able to be bought and all that different stuff. There was the scene where Reese is talking about uh, Hawk being his father and how he borrowed his dad's car when he was a teenager and got pulled over. They could have really done something with that with a black kid being pulled over by cops and being threatened because there's blood in the trunk of the car that is not his and only being saved by virtue of who his father is and like how terrifying that moment would be and yet Reese still chose to become a cop and is a cop and a black man and they just don't do anything with it they just let it be like oh Gotham cops are bad especially because there's the whole stakeout scene with his new partner that we got in the Motorcycle Gang episode. And we don't really see much of him being like a scumbag. Like the, the most we get is some donut jokes. Like that's literally how the Motorcycle Gang finds out he's a cop is we get a donut joke. But Reese is also very dedicated to this guy, even though they keep saying at this point, Reese is the only good cop and he can't stand these corrupt cops. But even that is just mentioned in passing, like, once. His partner seems, at best, incompetent and not particularly caring. Yeah. And it's just, oh, it's frustrating because they definitely, like, want to do stuff with race and with cops, but they don't have the balls to actually say anything about it. Just kind of dance around like, oh, he had this scary encounter as a teenager, but he was madder about his father, like, being a criminal than anything else. But for all that... I am just coming down hard on this series for the past who knows how many minutes. I had a fun time watching it. Me too. There's so much fun stuff about this. Like, okay, I have heard people give crap for this, but I love when Helena just has that little snarky Spidey senses joke in the first episode. Yeah. People call that like, oh, it's comics blasphemy. But I'm sitting here like, they reference Marvel a lot in Smallville. Like, they make a lot of cloak and dagger jokes. It's really cute. And like, I like that in the series, Helena is allowed to be feminine. And oh my god, yes. Despite how much I don't like the aesthetic of the series or the tonal problems that I think it has, it's fun to watch. Like, it's nice to look at. I do have to say, I love whenever we get those, like, little gay crumbs in this show, purely because there are many moments, it might just be me projecting, where Helena has a very strong queer energy. Oh, she does. <laughs> Especially, there are two moments that really just set off what my yeah, sensors First of all, when Helena is uh, sitting at the mutant bar with Gibson and she just makes that chair her bitch. <laughs> and also like immediately after when she runs into Dinah there and uh, tells her, oh, are you done having your little metahuman pride parade? Which is like, why did you choose that specific wording? What, what was that? What was that, Helena? Also can, I, also, can I just say, I had some very intense gay panic 
in the finale. God. When uh she was being beat up by Harley, there was that whole thing. And you can very clearly see that Ashley Scott has a tongue ring. I am very gay for Helena, but that just killed me right then and there. I dropped. Man, if okay, if it were any more than 13 episodes, I would hate it a lot more because it's right at my threshold of like how much so bad it's good I can take. <laughs> if it were longer, I would have had many more problems with it, but it's just the right length to be a series that is so bad it's entertaining. I love it. What I don't love, though, are the CW changes. I will admit I did not uh, watch this the most ethical way when I was 13. So I was watching the original on-air version. But this time around, uh, we watched it on CW Seed, which I'm a little shocked that they have it available for. CW has this thing where they struggle to keep the rights to original theme songs, and they made the worst choice in replacing the original theme song. This awesome, like, rock track for the aesthetic of the show. And now we have, like, this Gilmore Girls-style theme song playing when you watch it on CW Seed. God. I mean, I guess my final thought is it was not a waste of time. You know, I would make a drinking game for Birds of Prey if I didn't think it would kill me. God, that would be so much fun. I would get so fucking zooted. Honestly, I love this show. I loved it when I was 13. I still love it now, even though it is one of the cheesiest, cheapest shows you could watch. This is, like... This is down there when it comes to the 2000s shows I love, but this also kind of summarizes why I love them, <laughs> because it is cheesy, it is cliche, it is really bad, and it only lasted for one season. I do have to say, though, CW, why the hell did you change the ending? Because... I'm starting to wonder if it's just a Mandela effect. That is not the ending to Birds of Prey that I remember when I was 13. Watch, I guess, look for pirated versions and see if you can find it. Here's the thing, I did. Oh. And the one that I found still had that Alfred ending. So I'm sitting here like, did I imagine? Did I imagine the ending I saw when I was 13? Because the ending you will watch on CW Seed, it's not really going to be spoilers to what actually happens, but the very last scene you see is Alfred on the phone with Bruce Wayne and telling him, you know, you would be proud of your daughter. She is doing very well. The ending I remember was that same phone call from Bruce's perspective where you just see him from behind in this high-backed chair in front of a fireplace and he just hangs up the phone after because apparently Bruce Wayne was going to be in season two and it just didn't happen. We've talked for who knows how goddamn long about how bad this show is, but realistically, it's like, for a 2002 show, this is fine. It's it, it's everything I love about 2000s television. It's goofy. It's dumb. You can turn your brain off and just enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us on the first episode of You Got to Know. I've been your host, Bo Tamison Bennett. You can find me on Twitter at Tied with a Bow, that's Bow with a B O, or Instagram at Hellish Rebuke Creative. If there's a show you'd like to see a friend and I discuss, 
let us know there. Please consider supporting the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes. This show is made possible by your support. That includes just talking about us. Share us with a friend. And we'll see you next time. Music for this show by Kevin McLeod. Songs used. Impact Prelude. Anachronist. Soporific. Soporific.